0: Hello, everyone. Today, I'll be talking with Nikki Drayden. Pray of the Gods, published on June 13th, is Nikki Drayden's debut novel, though she's published many short stories. It's a compassionate work, despite a neglected, bloodthirsty goddess and an ancient spirit who assaults women in their dreams in order to father his brood. Though set in 2064, Boys Are Still Boys, Impulsive, playful, and needing to be brave. Families are still families, with traditional grandfathers hoping to share their ways with their descendants, although elders and parents often post the greatest danger in this novel. Boisterously mixing mythology and science fiction, the novel moves along from multiple perspectives, keeping the ball rolling. Be sure to pay attention to the old man's story about the mythological offspring he had. It serves as a framework to understand various characters and their newly acquired powers. Between cross-dressing politicians, a fashion-obsessed demon, and a bot revolution, there is never a dull moment in Cape Elizabeth. It's an extravaganza of monstrous hybrid beasts, theatrical costumes, and righteous battles. From a new voice in the tradition of Lauren Books, Nikki Drayden has brought us a fantastic, boundary-challenging tale set in a South African locale, both familiar and utterly new, which braids elements of science fiction, fantasy, horror, and dark humor. In South Africa, the future looks promising, Personal robots are making life easier for the working class. The government is harnessing renewable energy to provide infrastructure for the poor. And in the bustling coastal town of Port Elizabeth, the economy is booming thanks to genetic engineering, which has found a welcome home there. Yes, the days to come are looking very good for South Africans. That is if they can survive the present challenges, a new hallucinogenic drug sweeping the country, an emerging AI uprising, and an ancient demigoddess hell-bent on regaining her former status by preying on the blood and sweat, but mostly blood, of every human she encounters. It's up to a young Zulu girl powerful enough to destroy her entire township, a queer teen plagued with the ability to control minds, a pop diva with serious daddy issues, and a politician with even more serious mommy issues to band together to ensure that there is a future left to worry about. Fun and fantastic, Nikki Drayden takes her brilliance as a short story writer and weaves together an elaborate tale that will capture your heart even as one particular demigoddess threatens to rip it out. So now for the show, I'd just like to tell you a few sentences about Nikki. She's a system analyst who dabbles in prose when she's not buried in code. She likes relaxing in hammocks and scouring stores for turkey jerky. So I'm going to go ahead and focus in on a novel now. It's definitely not a YA novel, but Pray of the Gods begins with a rite of passage for one of our more lovable narrators, the gentle Muzi. Muzi's grandfather has convinced him to undergo ritual circumcision, an age-old Josa tradition. I'm going to read a little bit about Muzi. Here he is contemplating his fate. Muzi isn't sure what he'd been expecting, but he sure as hell knows it wasn't this. The witch doctor, Mr. Sohobeze, stands in his living room, two sheets to the wind and a hard breeze from the grave. A velour tracksuit hangs from his slender body like loose skin, zipper open to reveal a tangle of bone necklaces dangling around his neck. His wrinkled hand tremors slightly as it palms the knob of a walking stick that Muzi is pretty damn sure is made from ivory. Mr. Sohobez and Papa Fuzz embrace, that's Muzi's grandfather. Their boisterous greeting soon turns to hushed whippers. Muzi sounds, finds himself straining to hear, inching closer yet wishing he were a million miles away. They're speaking about him, he's sure, about his manhood. Fear surges through Muzi as this foolish decision of his suddenly seems all too real. The floorboard creaks beneath his tackies, and Papa Fuzz looks up. Too late. Moosey ducks back around a corner. Moosey Kaize, his Papa Fuzz calls. Come meet an old friend of mine. Moosey clenches his eyes shut, his mind still wobbly from the godsend. From Elkin. His thoughts whipped back to his childhood, where Papa Fuzz would chase him down a hall, calling his name, and Moosey would scream at the top of his lungs, "'Come and get me! Come and get me!' Giddy with the anticipation of tickle hugs when he was finally caught. He could run now. No one would ever catch him, because he sure as hell knows there's no tickle coming at the end of this meeting." The last whispers of his childhood had slipped through his fingers this afternoon, and men didn't run when fear reared its ugly head. Muzi takes one timid step into the living room, keeping one hand on the back of his mother's favorite sitting chair for support. Mr. Sohobeze, he says, other hand extended, then manages to utter, "Uh, It's an honor. Papa Fuzz beckons Moosey closer. Moosey tries to comply, but his knees are locked and there's no budging. The witch doctor's dull eyes come to life, darting all over Moosey's body so hard. Moosey feels the steely gaze nicking away at his skin, chopping away at his locks. He shudders at the way Mr. Sohobezi makes him feel so naked. Maybe if Moosey didn't have to go through this alone... Maybe if he'd bothered to learn the rituals of his ancestors, maybe if Mr. Sohobeze hadn't just drawn a spear blade from the inside that damned velour jacket of his, then maybe Moosey could have seen his promise through. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki, by opening your book with Muzi and his desire to make Papa Fuzz happy, you've made us sympathize with your narrator. Even while we laugh at his predicament, how did you come up with the idea of opening your novel with that scene? Well, I think
1: um, it immediately pulls the reader into this very tough situation. And it's a a situation we can't really uh, understand so much, but it is something everybody comes up against these forks in their lives where they have to choose one path or another path. And I think people can to sympathize with that, that we all go through this, you know, our teenagers where we have to make these difficult decisions. So I think it's kind of immediately um, kind of pulls a reader in. And also, you just want to know what happens, because does music go through with it? Does he, you know, appease his grandfather? And he he just loves his grandfather so much. His grandfather is more of a father figure to him, as we kind of saw you know, they have a long history together. They're, they live in the same house, so it's always, it's always, it's just kind of a hard, hard spot for him to decide if he wants to go through with this this ritual that he really doesn't understand. It's a part of part of his his history, but he never really took the time to understand. You know what it means. And he he's trying to figure out how to be a man. Um, he's saying goodbye to his childhood, and it's just kind of he's caught in the crux of a lot of points right now. He's kind of, you know, falling in love and trying to figure out who he is. And that's just kind of like a, a theme that runs through the entire book. So it's, I thought it was kind of a good starting point to to introduce the to readers to this world. I think actually, when I first wrote the, the first draft of this, this was actually the second Chapter though, so there was a chapter before this, so we switched things around expressly for the purpose of being able to draw the reader in and being able to connect to Musi, because Musi's he has the majority of chapters compared to the other characters in the book.
0: He was probably the most sympathetic character to me, although a couple of them you end up really liking and rooting for.
1: Think so. They all they all have a little bit of me in them. So I don't. I hate to choose favorites, but I think if I had to choose a favorite, I think it would be
0: Musy. Yeah, he's a sweetie. Many fantasy novels recently have been exploring the world of demons and angels. Often, the angels are presented as cruel and unfeeling. The demons are occasionally misunderstood. Your novel doesn't introduce gods as inherently good or evil. They can be both. They can choose to be good or evil. One young girl in your book, uh, she's a central character. Discovering her powers is told, you can be a benevolent god or a vengeful god, have ire or basos. Could you explain the terms basos and ire more and come on Comment on the different directions the discovery of power takes in your various protagonists?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. So in the book, there are several methods for these gods and goddesses to gain power. Um, and the easiest easiest way to get power is through fear or creating you know, dread within someone. So basically you scare somebody. Sometimes you scare them to death. And that generates a, a sort of power called ire. That um, it's kind of a fast, a fast-lived power, so you have to use it up quickly. It doesn't last very long. It's it's pretty it's pretty potent, um, but you know I think it's kind of Sydney's go-to. Um, <laughs> yeah, Sydney she's kind of the villain in this, but however, I think in her own mind she thinks she's the hero of the story. Um, she kind of has this grand plan for humanity. Only she's Kind of stuck in a dead end job right now. She's working as a, a nail technician, and she has another job, you know, overseeing robots at, at, at a janitorial um, situation. So she's kind of, you know, just trying to make in it, and she's she barely has enough power to, to to use in her day job, which is to give really awesome manicures with her mm-hmm. magical powers. But um, so sometimes she feels like she she can, you know, scare people, and if she kills a person or two, it's no big deal because you know, humanity will reap the benefits when she comes back to power. And you just, it's kind of one of those things where you have to, you know, break a couple of eggs to make an omelet. She just, she doesn't think it's a big deal to, to, to pursue ire through this, this, uh, to, to charge her powers. Um, so the next method is Besos or belief, which is basically gaining believers and building up a following um the at first the power isn't as intense as ire. It's kind of a but it's kind of a long lived lived uh power that stays with you for a long time. And as you gain followers, you the the power compounds itself. So it kind of, you know, increases as you, you gain followers. So it's kind of a, a long term game plan if you want to be a benevolent god. You just You know, you got to get in the trenches, perform some miracles, um, get believers, get people on your side. um, And then you're able to do even bigger, bigger miracles. And it keeps kind of escalating from there. Um, And that's kind of where Namvula, who's the young girl, she lives in the township um, and she's 10 years old. She's just kind of coming into her powers. And so she doesn't really know. She doesn't have a lot of, of guidance she has a little bit of guidance for Mr. Tao, but she's trying to figure out who she is. Um, And she, she thinks she wants to be a benevolent goddess. And so she, she does do performs a few small miracles and she does gain a few followers, but she's kind of at the low stakes level of playing right now. And she, she quickly learns that, you know, it's not always easy, just as easy as doing the right thing. There's, there's like shades of gray. And sometimes as a goddess, you have to choose between two equally bad things or you could you know decide not to interfere with with humanity at all so she's she's kind of quickly learns that it's not all fun and games for her um there's actually a third method which is uh killing another god gets you like mega power
0: uh-huh and,
1: <laughs> and the the other methods kind of pale in, pale, pale in comparison to to actually killing God, which of course, killing a God requires a lot of power to begin with, and so it's kind of like a catch twenty um, two. How are you going to kill a God if you don't have the power to kill a God? And um, but our, our our dear friend Sydney, we know is really good. She's a really good planner, so you can also if you have a really really good plan, it's also possible. So. Um, I'll just kind of leave it at that.
0: <laughs> okay. The Basso sounds kind of like being a social media influencer.
1: I think, yeah, there's some, uh, some direct relation to that, I think, so. A lot of work.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And you have to wait. doesn't pay off right away. Right. Well, there are various parental figures in your novel, and uh, quite a few of them are frightening or overly controlling There's a scary mother with supernatural powers, a father who wants his daughter to regress back to childhood, and a woman whose depression forces her child to fend for herself. Your own book is dedicated to your parents. What do you feel an ideal parent should be like?
1: Okay. So I would like to say that, um, state for the record, that my parents are awesome and very supportive, and they've been supportive of me for for many, many years, um, from the beginning. And so like, there's no parallels at all. This is just, just fiction at this point. Mm-hmm. But, um, there, I think something that I do find interesting is the struggle between, you know, parents and children. Cause I think there's just kind of a natural struggle that's built into that relationship. And I, I got to explore it on many different levels and many different ways, um, through different characters. Um, so there's kind of like the natural, you know, struggles trying to define yourself, you know, in opposite way of your parents or trying to figure out where you fit into their culture um, and their wishes. Sometimes they want to press you into one, to one, you know, career and you might want to do something else. Or there's just kind of a lot of, you know, they, sometimes they don't want to say goodbye to, you know, this child that they raised and they don't want to come to terms with, you know, this is an, a, a person, a person their own person, independent person that doesn't need you as much as they used to. So there's a lot of, of that going on. Um, but this, a lot of this book, the things, um, focus on, you know, how do you become your own person? Um, and the, the journey you have to go through and the interactions with your parents that you need to do to get there. Um, so then you add in the supernatural component on top of that and it just kind of makes the drama more intense. And so, you know, your usual teen years are kind of typically, you know, a little bit boisterous or just, you know, how they can be. Uh, Imagine having superpowers on top of that. And it's just kind of, you know, waiting for something to explode sometimes, literally. Um, We have Musi who he's really kind of at a point where he's, you know, he's 16 years old. He's trying to figure out if he wants to go through this ritual circumcision. And he has his grandfather who he really wants to appease. Um, and he's kind of feeling out of control. Um, but then he his powers come about. And his particular power is, I'll go ahead and share. But his particular power is being able to control people's minds. And so here we have somebody who was kind of feeling out of control and feeling like they didn't have a lot of agency kind of in their own life and where their own path was taking. And now he's able to control people's minds. And it's one thing to control the minds of your enemies or, you know, people you don't know, but then when you start controlling the minds of your friends and family, you just kind of have to, you know, step back and ask, you know, how is that going to affect dynamics? Because of course those things can never go well. Um, And then we have Namvula who is, her, she's really craving family. She craves family so hard. Her mother kind of went through this traumatic incident and is now unable to care for Numbula. And Nubula is kind of taking the parental role when caring for her mother. And she's kind of fending for herself um, within her township. And she has some support from her her aunt who takes care of her a lot of the times. But she's kind of on her own, and she's trying to find finds out who she is and comes across Mr. Tao who she's really not supposed to be talking to but he offers her a little bit of, of family that she's really been craving and she's just so desperate for a family that kind of can kind of backfire when you're so desperate for anybody mm-hmm. you just have to be a little bit more selective and so when Sydney comes into the scene I won't say too much. She's. she's kind of like a a sister figure to her. So it's kind of you have to be really careful of where you draw the lines between family and setting boundaries between family. Um, We also have Rhea Nantrajan, who is the pop diva of the story. And a lot of the the themes in in the story also center around music. It's a very musical book. And so she she's kind of she's failed her father and she she made a decision in her her teenage years that really affected her relationship with her father um and basically they had to cut ties because it was just this such a big rift she was out you know trying to establish her her career at a time when her father needed her the most and she wasn't there for him and he's been pretty bitter about that and hasn't dealt with it very well and um So it's just kind of, you know, these rifts, how do you, can you repair a rift that that deep? Um, Should you try? Um, So a lot of, a lot of these relationships are kind of just up in the air. People pursuing, pursuing, you know, their careers or their independence Mm -hmm. over family obligation. And you kind of just start asking your questions, you know, when does family obligation end? It's just. Um, what do we owe the people who were born into the, the family, the families were born into, what do we owe them? And so there's all these questions you kind of ask yourself, like, is there a point where you just need to cut yourself off? If, if things are toxic, you know, what, what, do you, what do you do? And so a lot of these characters have to, you know, come to terms with how they're going to define their family. And fortunate thing is you can define your family however you want to define it. And a lot of these people are trying to figure that out um, in the story.
0: You know, if you hadn't become assistance analyst, uh, I think you would have made a good social worker.
1: <laughs> Actually, I, I work. My job is for the school of social work, so I, I'm a system analyst in the school of social work. So,
0: perfect. Think...
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, in the beginning of part two, and this is the part that the readers should pay attention to. One of the divine characters shares the story of creation, and that explains how humans have attributes of a special animal when they come into their godlike power. For example, the crab people, and Musi's one of those, can influence others, make them do what they want. There are crabs, peacocks, dolphins, rats, serpents, and eagles. For people steeped in Western mythology, such as Greek mythology, the story is very novel. Sometimes it's almost odd and jarring because we're used to thinking of things like dragons, wolves, and tigers instead of crabs and peacocks and rats. And I was wondering how much of the novel had its sources in African mythology. When I read The Palm Wine Drinkard, for example, by Amos Tutuola. I remember having a similar reaction and I later found out that was based on Yoruba folklore. Does your creation tale have a basis in folklore as well?
1: Well, I certainly wanted it to feel that way. Um, so I used a lot of, you know, the symbols that we find, like the trees, the animals that we, we commonly find in um, folklore across different cultures. Um, but actually in actuality, I will tell you the secret Um well, first, I love creation myth. So it's like something that really interests me. Mm-hmm. And so I in this story, I kind of got to dabble in creating my own creation myth. Um, so I don't know if you know, but um, The Pray of Gods was written during National Novel Writing Month. And so Mr. Tao's story, you know, it's, you have to write 50,000 words in 30 days, basically. So each day you have to write hundred and. Uh, wait, 1,666 words each day. <laughs> yeah. so, so sometimes, you know, that can be a little bit of a, a challenge. And so this was kind of an attempt to get a lot of words on the page for a day. I was kind of lagging behind on word count. And so it was. It became this kind of a circular story, which is really good when you want to pad out your words. Um, There's a, a lot of repetitiveness, which I think is kind of, I think it's a comforting method. Mechanism and people like kind of repetitive stories because you can kind of get into the rhythm of the story, um, but I think it gave it kind of a kind of an old world kind of feel that kind of ties in nicely with with the narrative. So it's in, influenced, but not directly from any particular
0: folklore. Yeah, I thought it was really helpful for me to understand uh, the different kinds of people in a novel and to know what kind of powers that they had under their command, and it was a good way of introducing that information without creating a lot of backstory in the novel itself.
1: Right. I try tried, I tried to keep it fairly brief because I know it's easy for people to kind of follow the story if they go into all these little, you know, flashbacks or mm-hmm. sides, so I try to keep it brief and get, keep it to the point.
0: Well, you live in Austin, which is a progressive Texas town where individuality is prized. The city slogan is, Keep Austin Weird, and for years, a perennial candidate for mayor was a homeless cross-dresser called Leslie. Your novel features a cross-dressing, warm-hearted politician as well, though he's from a powerful family and well-connected. Do you think Austin has influenced your novel?
1: Um, to a certain degree, I hadn't really thought about it like that. Um, I think, you know, Austin's about keeping it weird. And I, from that perspective, I definitely try to keep things weird in my fiction. Um, that's just a part of who I am. Um, but as far as like direct influences in the story, I, I don't think I thought that way. They, um, all the characters actually just came from... I had a stack of character sketches. Like, I just keep, if I have an idea for a character, I just, you know, jot a few lines down about who they are and I stick them in a file. And then Hmm. when when it was time to write this story, it was like, you know, October 31st, you know, getting ready for National Novel Writing Month. What am I going to write about? And I, I usually don't, like, outline or outline too much. And so I'm like, I just picked six random characters from my character file and stuck them all in. And then I picked South Africa as a setting because I'd been there, you know, back in college. And I always kind of wanted to write something about that and see how, you know, the experiences I had there would translate in in 50 years into the future. Um, And so I just, you know, sat back and let the characters do what they wanted to do. And their stories started to kind of weave together and intertwine. And I was, you know, kind of apprehensive at first because there's all these people who are not, most of them are not related in any you know manner just to kind of see how their the relationships develop is really interesting and it's a challenge I like the challenge but it was a challenge to get them all to tie together. There's a uh,
0: film there's a filmmaker who films like that. I can't think of his name right now. he's British. He basically assembles the crew and he sketches out the situation and decides on a locale. He doesn't give them any dialogue. he puts them together. And then he just kind of sees what happens and works from there. It's an interesting way to work. It worked in this novel.
1: Oh, I'm glad.
0: (laughs) Well, as a sophomore in college, to go back to the topic of South Africa. You actually went there as a peer counselor for a program focused on renewable energy and environmental protection. You talk a little bit about this in the back of your novel, but please share a little bit with our listeners today about how the experience changed you and influenced your writing.
1: Sure. Well, when I went, I was not yet a writer, but I think I've always had kind of a writer's brain. So, you know, you just kind of file stuff away. Um so yes, back, I was a sophomore in college, and I was a peer counselor for a program called uh, Renewable Energy and Environment Protection Program, and it was for high school uh, juniors and seniors, and so I just kind of got to go along with them on this ride to South Africa, which was pretty sweet when, you know, you're a college sophomore, and I'd never been out of, out of the country before, so it was really eye-opening to see, you know, how people in a different country live and it was really 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 cool so um we since from the moment we got there it was so amazing because like we the people were so friendly and so welcoming and it was i kind of did consider it like very similar to austin at the time which was just you know you can walk up to anybody and start a conversation because like everyone's so friendly and everyone was you know very proud of of their culture and willing to talk to you about their culture and share their cultures with you. Um, and just very open, um, about our questions. They didn't shy away from anything. And when we went, it was, I guess it was 1997. So it was just a few years after apartheid had ended. And so we got to have these really candid conversations with people. And I remember being in a mall, um, when a a black gentleman was talking to us and he was telling us, you know, yeah, you know, a few years ago, we wouldn't have been allowed to come in here and like, which, you know, would, would have included me. And, you know, we, we hear about, you know, civil rights from our, my parents' generation, but just to kind of see it's not that far removed was really kind of an eye opening experience. And we also, I mean, we got to do a lot of things. We toured townships, we toured several townships, um, and kind of the purpose there was to kind of scout and see how renewable energy could help, um, you know, in these remote locations. And so that one of the features in the book is, you know, there's a solar a solar powered water well in, in the book and like sort of things like that. That kind of that's kind of where that comes from. Um, got to meet the people, eat, eat their food. And they were just just so, so generous with their with their time and the energy they put into to hosting us. Um, we also got to, you know, tour wildlife reserves and see that side of things. And so um, just kind of like wildlife, particularly elephants, have always been my favorite animal. And so kind of touching the book also touches on things like conservation of animals and our failure to to do that. Because a lot in the book, a lot of the, the big, big, you know, six animals or however many animals there are, are have gone extinct and some of it's been revived through you know genetic engineering but like as the original versions of of lions and elephants are all gone um so those are kind of the the elements that that i came across and one of the funny things it just kind of it might be one of those things where you remember things differently than they actually are but i remember when we were driving around and we would it seems like we were always coming across these little antelopes called dictics that were just like kind of dart darting in and out of traffic, and we'd see them everywhere. We kind of have to like fear around them a little bit. And it might have it might have been we just saw like you know three, two or three or four of them, but in my mind, somehow it just seems like there was just like a population explosion of dictics, and dictics were everywhere. And so there in the book, there's a proliferation of dictics, and it's a major problem that the, the politician in the story is trying to. To figure out how to get rid of all these dick-dicks in a kind of a humane way, so that's kind of uh, one of more the more fun aspects of my trip that uh, that I was able to bring into the novel.
0: Yes, they definitely have turned into a scourge in South Africa at the time the novelists. <laughs> uh, you also have something that seems like an animal, but it's not. It's called an Alfie, and it's an AI device that most kids seem to have and adults too, that kind of keeps you company. They resemble dogs. Are they ever going to replace pets? Are are you working on one <laughs> when you're not at the school of social work? <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> I I don't think I have that capability, but I think it would I would gladly volunteer to have one if somebody wants to test test it out in my home. Um I think that's a good like I hadn't really thought about that. It does kind of serve as a, sort of a pet. It also, they're kind of these like round little, they're about the size of a soccer ball, like their heads are about the size of a soccer ball and they have like these little eight spider legs that kind of, they just walk around on. Um, and they have a big lens on the front so they're able to serve as your laptop, as your phone, you know, there's storage compartments within them so you don't have to carry your purse around or a backpack or whatever. Um, so they kind of are this you know, all-encompassing device that everyone has. And you don't even have to carry it because it'll just, like, scamper around behind you. And a lot of people in the book, they do have kind of a, a special connection with their their Alfies. And so th- they'll pet them and, you know, talk to them in the voice you talk to your, your dog or your cat in, the little coo- cooing voice. Um, so I think, I think it kind of could fill the pet niche. Um, also, if, if you don't happen to have a pet... Um, they're very handy. Um, <laughs> though also, the book does have pets in it, and so I think in this this age of genetic engineering, people have made their own versions of pets, and nobody, you know, admits to having it made. But one of the the ladies in Sydney's first chapter is getting a manicure, and she has a, a some kind of animal that's kind of a a mix between a, like a whippet and a, an iguana. And it's just kind of this creepy, scaly, half fuzzy kind of thing with a long tail that, uh, Sydney has to kind of appease and be nice to, even though it's like licking her in the face, um, in order to get a tip because she, you know, she needs, she needs her tips and her money to pay the rent or whatever. Um, so she, there's these designer pets. So a lot of people have designer pets and there's designer, you know, wildlife. And so I think there's still room for actual pets. I think it's kind of changing to what compared to what we have. It's more of a status symbol to own these things that are, you know, man's creation. So I think just kind of a normal, normal family could probably get away with just having an Alfie for a pet, though.
0: With that horrible creature that Sydney has at the salon, that's actually when. We first meet her and at that point I was still quite sympathetic to her. I think uh you kind of crept in on the readers showing us how how bloodthirsty Sydney really is. Yeah,
1: I I, I agree. She she started off like I said, she's she thinks she's good. She doesn't see any problem with anything she's done throughout the whole book, she's, she's in this for the greater good. If she's going to make humanity stronger, she's going to get rid of, you know, the, get rid of the riffraff and just make this really strong human, human race. And so that's kind of her idea. So I think in a lot of ways, she is sympathetic and she did start off very sympathetic and hers was, used to be the first chapter. Um, So I think uh, she's, she's still one of my favorites, even with all her flaws like she's, she's, she's got big plans and hopefully people, I mean, I don't want you to sympathize with her, but in just to kind of see, just kind of to see she's, she's a person too, even though she's a demigoddess, she's been, she's been through things and she, the reasons why she makes the decisions she, she makes her the real, she's been hurt too. So I don't know. It's just kind of, I like her, but yeah,
0: she's, <laughs> she's a very vivid character. <laughs> she's yeah. hard to forget. Yes. Well, what are you working on right now? Um, well, I have a book
1: scheduled to come out next summer, and I actually just, I think, finished this last round of edits. But it's it's also kind of an African inspired, kind of a humorous dark fantasy. That has some elements of steampunk in it, so I have some some things like robot spiders, more robot spiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I have a uh, I have a type of novel I ha- like to write. I guess so. There's gods and spiders, uh, or robots, robot spiders to look forward to. Um, in this book, there's kind of a, a a tradition of twinning. So in this book, everyone basically has a twin. And so there's, it's kind of like the good twin and the evil twin. And the story mm-hmm. is told from the perspective of the evil twin. No, I mean, he's a, the evil twin in quotes. He's, he's a person, you know, we're all making decisions. Some decisions are good and some decisions are bad. But um, in this society, people are actually branded um, with, they have uh, some vices and virtues that everyone's kind of assigned when they come of this a certain age and so when you are assigned these virtues and vices they brand all of the vices down your arm so whoever there's seven vices so whoever who has the majority of vices is you know dubbed the evil twin or whatever or the the lesser twin and how it's said in the book and so there's a lot of you know social strife between the lesser and greater twins um there's just kind of a lot of different types of stripes all along. So it's just kind of exploring similar, you know, social issues and godhood and what defines you and heroes' journeys and that kind of thing. So, but I'm excited about that one too. So hopefully that'll be making the rounds to my editor very soon.
0: Do you have a working title for it? Uh, Not
1: quite yet. I'm still kind of trying to get things together. Uh, It's just a big, a big process, I guess. Overwhelming. I had to write there's seven chapters, one chapter for each virtue and vice pair. And so I had to rewrite the last chapter and the last chapter, it doesn't sound like a lot to rewrite one chapter, but the chapter was like 70 pages long. And so oh. I'm kind of coming down from that big giant rewrite of one chapter. But I, I think it, I think it's, you know, I'm biased, but I think it's a pretty good story.
0: Well, great. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show today, and we want to wish you luck of lots of luck. Uh, again, the novel will be available June 13th, or is available June 13th, depending on when you're listening to the show. <laughs> and thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun.